Thanks, Andrea. And thank you, John. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Great. Awesome. Glad the snow stopped for you. Um, if you don't come here very often, the uh, last sermon, this one, and some of the next one is going to be a different mode than normal. Normally, I preach right out of a Bible passage, and, but every once in a while we cover something that really requires a synthesis. And so you can't like camp out in Bible verses. Sometimes it doesn't even sound like a sermon when you preach that way, and I apologize for that. Um, but there are some things we have to talk about that are synthesizing things, and this is one of those things. So, yeah, and the, other, the only other thing I want to say is I'd like to apologize in advance for the inadequacy of this sermon. Um, the topic is extraordinarily difficult. I haven't, I haven't found any sermon that I could just copy, or I definitely would have. And <clears throat> I would have told you, but I would have copied it. And so um, I just believe in the importance of the topic. And so I'm going to try to try to be a doctor and do as little harm as possible, even if I can't cure anything. So with that encouraging introduction, um, a lot of people feel like in society right now, people are really moving away from each other, that things are getting a little more incivil and we're not getting better at talking to each other. And Pew has done some research on this, particularly related to political views, and they found that there's actually a lot of truth to that. Um, there wasn't a lot of difference between the median Republican and the median Democrat in 2004, which was Bush-Gore, if you're counting. Um, but in the Bush-Obama years, so apparently there might be enough blame to go around, um, the country really has very much moved apart in the consistency of their political views and their animosity towards each other. Because when they asked them, not, um, do, what is your favorability, unfavorability towards the people on the other side? People have dramatically increased how much they dislike the other side, see them as um, unfavorable. And actually, the level at which people in the other party from each other think that the other party is a danger to the country is almost as high as it was generally unfavorable a few years ago. That's the world we live in. The question is, though, like, okay, so what are we going to do about this? If we're believers in Jesus, our identity is in Jesus first, um, is this going to separate us? Because we all have the same political views as they do. I mean, we're part of the people. We are the people that they interviewed, right? And is this going to separate us? And how are we supposed to respond to this? And what do we do about this? And how do we think about the church and society? And what are we going to do? <clears throat> One of the better um, books I've read on this is by Robert Benet called Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion and Politics, which is mercifully only 113 pages long. He kind of gets right to the point. Um, and in it, he argues that there's basically two bad ways to think about religion and politics, or you could say religion and society more broadly. And one is called separationism, the idea that the two are totally separate, they should never talk to each other, they should be, you know, like, in different hemispheres. And the other is called, he calls fusionism, that is, that the two are so fused and melded together that you don't know where one stops and the other begins, and you get politicized religion and religionized politics. Okay? And his argument is that neither of those are good. Both of those are bad. And there is some evidence, for example, that Jesus believed that there is a level of separation between real biblical faith and the God that is, and our identity in him, and our identity as people in a country in which we live. And a lot of people who think about this have gone to this passage and said, I mean, Jesus said, give to Caesar what Caesar's. He has a sphere and domain of authority, and give to God what is God's. God has his sphere and domain of authority, and you got to have a kind of keep those straight. And, and to a certain extent, they are distinguishable. They're separatable. That's not a word. 
The definition of separationism or separation is basically that religion must be kept totally separate from politics and society. Now, it's important to add society there. I'm not just talking about politics. There are a lot of people who don't just believe that religion has no place in politics or even political thinking, but it has no place in society at all. Okay? And the problem with this is that almost no one actually believes that. What most people believe is what Benet calls selective separationists, which is that um, the people that don't agree with me need to keep their religion out of society and out of politics and out of everything. Now, to be fair—well, not to be fair, to be honest, over the last 10 or 12 years, there have been lots of books written on this, and almost every single one of them—I'd be willing to say 95% of them— are written by very liberal Democrats saying that conservative Christians and Jews and people like that need to keep the heck out of politics and not say things publicly that have any relationship to their religious reasoning. That's just a fact. I don't, I'm, saying, I'm not even saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm just saying it is a fact that the emotional pressure is moving in that direction. Now, you can go back to the 80s to, like, the moral majority and Jerry Falwell, and there were times where he would talk, and it would sound like he thought that it was to be a Christian was to vote Republican. That's true. Of course, that was the 80s, which is a while ago now, okay? Um, and so we shouldn't pretend like this is like, it's, oh, it's going both ways. It's not going both ways right now, generally speaking. And one of the things that people often don't realize is because is that if you go into the mainline theologically liberal denominations, there is almost no separation at all between their religion and their politics. In fact, I would say that they are suffering some, from absolute fusionism. If you doubt, just sign up for a Wisconsin Council of Churches email. And they'll tell you exactly what they're doing. And all of it is advocating and coercing for policies. All of it. Okay? Not trying to be mean. That's, you might not know that. That's reality. Okay? Now, um, fusionism, however, is the thing that we really have to deal with because most people recognize that though it is a benefit to keep the institutions of church and state fundamentally separate, to go from that and to say, therefore, we can somehow separate our philosophy from our life, that in reality, we can keep our faith and our politics or our views on society or our moral beliefs somehow separate is to basically say we should all be intellectual hypocrites. Okay, that doesn't—that's not a coherent view. It's certainly not the desire of the founders or of the legal history of the United States. And generally speaking, the people who advocate for that, like the Freedom From Religion Foundation, um, it, it, it's just kind of mean. It's like to say, all of my thinking, because I can claim it's not religious, should count. And all the rest of the thinking of all of humanity through all of time doesn't count for anything anymore because in some way it's somehow related to some kind of religious tradition. And I'm sorry, that's just flat demagoguery. Now, there's a lot of Christian demagoguery, but that is demagoguery too. That's all. Now, fusionism is when the two begin to meld together and you begin to get religious politics or political religion and you don't know where the one starts and the other ends. Um, Benet defines it this way. It's the belief that there is so much affinity between the central claims of the faith that a person holds and their favored political policies that the two are scarcely distinguishable. Right? Now, there's a number of reasons why Christians are sort of constantly in danger of falling into some kind of fusionism, 
right? Very intelligent Christians have fallen for this trap. For example, one of the most careful thinkers of the 20th century was a theologian called Paul Tell, who I disagree with on a lot, right? I would not consider us, him and I, in the same camp at all. There's one point where he was writing and he said, socialism is the only possible economic system from the Christian point of view. Now, Tillich said a lot of really interesting things, and he was a very able philosopher. I think University of Chicago is where he taught, but that's really silly, okay? And now, and you could, you could just take out socialism and put in unregulated capitalism, and it would be just as silly, okay? And what that points to is something that Ben in his book, and I really like this phrase, and I think you should write it down, and I think you should learn to explain this, and I think you should use it at the water cooler. It's what he calls straight-line thinking, Straight-line thinking is essentially the belief that there is a direct, straight, uninterrupted line between your theological view or your faith and the political policy that you like. And therefore, anybody with half a stinking wit that agrees with you theologically should obviously agree with you politically or socially. It's the belief that there is a straight line between your faith, your views, and therefore the policies that you like. And it's boop. Boop, boop. And therefore, whoever can't see that is either really illogical or probably just wicked. Right? Really understanding how public policy works and how politics works, how social views work, it's not a straight line. It's enormously complicated, and that's why everybody likes to be lazy and watch cable opinion shows who are hosted by, and the guests are basically just as lazy as they are. Or, if they're an actual interested, interesting person who's actually thought about it, the thing is so framed so that none of that can come out, because the issue can't get complex, otherwise people who are supposed to be on your team could get confused about their loyalties, that it doesn't come out. I've seen really interesting people on all kinds of the sides of political issues go on opinion shows. They don't get to share anything interesting, right? If you share anything interesting, you get interrupted in two seconds, right? This is what it's more like, right? You've got your faith, which you believe theologically is true. There's whether or not you have good information about the thing to begin with. There's what you think is moral in relationship to natural law and your faith and whatever. And then there's also your political philosophy. Like, you might think the poor should be helped, but that doesn't—but who should help the poor? And how? What's your political philosophy? Should it be the federal government, the state government? Should it be a, a, something between them? Should it be done by nonprofits? Should it be a mixture of all three? Should it be what you think about that matters in terms of how you'll answer the question, and then then you can start talking about is it politically possible? Are we pointing at the right goal or end anyway? Who should be doing this? Who should we assign this to? And is it feasible in any way for us to actually accomplish? Like you can be like, I'm for the policy of eradicating poverty by November. Well, that's great. And I'm kind of for that policy, too, except it's not a policy. It's just a sentence. <laughs> right? We've been, we've been trying to do this. Right? So, like, is it feasible? And then you put all that together, and you might be able to do a policy candidate. Now, what I, I'm not saying that because it's that complicated, there's not a right view, or that all views are equal, or that we're all confused about it. No, I'm not saying that. I have very specific views, and I definitely think they're right, and I'm happy to argue with you about them, and I will try to keep them out of my preaching. But, but the point is, is that if that's what it's like, then we should— Politics should be something that we do talk about all the time with lots of people, especially people who disagree with us, because to think that we know what we're talking about for most of us is just not sensible. And we should be very eager to talk with people who think very differently than us, because there's probably something we've missed. 
It may not change our view. It's that might not swing us to some other side, but it matters, right? I'll apply this something in just a second, but one of the other things that really is difficult is when we use mental shortcuts, which we all do, because we live in an extremely complicated world, right? But sometimes the mental shortcuts can be so totalizing that it shuts off any ability to talk with anyone, right? So one example is our political ideologies can be incredibly narrowing. The, the main political ideologies, there's three of them right now in our, in our nation, generally speaking, progressivism, conservatism, and libertarianism. And both of them have very functional and perfectly logical systems of thinking, right? So in ter- progressives usually tend to think in terms of oppre- oppressor and oppressed and liberator. So they'll look at a situation and say, who is the person who's being treated unfairly and who's being oppressed in this situation? Who is the person or group who is oppressing them? And how can we function as a liberator? Right? Now is that, is that rational? As far as I can tell, that's pretty rational. Okay? Now, you move on to conservatives, and conservatives generally feel like society didn't get here out of nowhere. The reason we have social traditions and institutions and so on is because we tried to move towards an, a rightly ordered way of living together, and we call that civilization, and it doesn't keep itself. And so what they tend to see is they tend to see things that keep civilization in order so we can live together in peace and so on. And then there are other people that are just honestly trying to tear that down, either out of selfishness or personal gain or corruption, or because they want to tear down the social order and create a new one out of nothing that's probably idiotic. And so when they look at a situation, they say, who is the person who's upholding human civilization here? And who's the barbarian who's tearing it apart? And how can we support civilization and fight barbarism? And look, if you look at the history of humanity, there have been a lot of rises of civilizations and disintegrations of civilizations. It's not crazy, right? And then for libertarians, they recognize that freedom is not the normal state of human life. I mean, Milton Friedman is, is the, was the guy with the famous quote where he would say, look at the history of humanity. Is freedom normal or abnormal in the history of human life? And of course the answer, if you know anything about history, is it's abnormal. If it's abnormal, then it must always be consciously and directly and effectively and quickly defended. And therefore, one of the most important first steps is, where is freedom? Where are people trying to take it away? And how do we stand up to those people and maintain our freedom? Right? Listen, as far as I can tell, all of those are fair-minded. All of those are right. All of those are useful. The problem is, is that when you put those goggles on and you won't take them off. Let me give an example that'll make you angry. Because if you get angry, you're doing exactly what I'm talking about, okay? Ferguson. Ferguson, okay? That happens, okay? And what's the progressive response? Who's the oppressed? Who's the oppressor? How can we be a liberator? Okay, you got a cop and you got a black guy that got shot. Okay, who's clearly going to be the oppressed in that situation. It doesn't matter. The facts do not matter to either side, to none of the sides, because nobody had them, but everybody knew what they wanted to say, right? The federal investigation as to whether or not indict, we got word of that this week, okay? So, so clearly it's going to be the African-American guy who got shot is the oppressed person because he's dead, right? You've got the cop, the guy who has the power, That's clearly the oppressor and everybody related to him. And therefore, how can we be a liberator? 
We need to come in and seek justice in this situation for his individual life and to change the system, right? It's perfectly rational, right? Conservative looks at that and what do they see? They see a civilization upholder who has a very difficult job, who it's his job to create rule of law and enforce the rule of law. You have this enormous guy who is like 300 pounds, whose name was Big Mike, who allegedly grabbed the guy's gun and tried to kill him with it, right? It's it's very clear what we have here, right? We have somebody who upholds civilization. We have a barbarian, and we need to come in here and uphold civilization and work against the barbarism, right? And then the libertarian—like, I'll use Eric Garner for this one. You talk to libertarians, you know what they say? Why are we arresting these people to begin with, right? Like, we arrested somebody because he was selling cigarettes, and he wasn't paying the incredibly exorbitant New York State tax on them, which created a black market, and they should have expected that, and then we don't write a ticket for it. I've talked to police about this. They're like, why we aren't writing tickets for that? For it to get litigated. Why we have to take these people into custody? Because the minute you're a cop and you take somebody into custody, bad things can happen. It's just flat. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. The minute you have to take control of somebody, people can get killed or hurt or injured or maimed or become disabled or, or have their dignity destroyed or whatever. There's nothing more undignifying than getting arrested, right? Libertarians are like, why, why should we be coercing this? Why should we be that hard-handed? That, it's the hard-handedness of this whole thing. It's taking people into custody and litigating how many cents you can charge people on cigarettes. That's the problem, right? Are they all right? I don't know if they're all right, but all of those views are perfectly rational from within the shortcut. And here's my, here's my deal. Listen, use all three of them. I think they're all three valid. I think when you hear a story, I think you should pull all three pairs of glasses out and look at what the progressive one and go, oh, that's interesting. And then put on the conservative one and go, yeah, civilization doesn't keep, okay. And then put on the libertarian, who's coercing who? I, I think that's very helpful. But, you, but metaphors are there to be used to produce understanding. What they're being used for generally is to divide people on who's on what team and to stigmatize people who aren't on the right one. Now, religious shortcuts are just as bad, and we have lots of them. You talk to Christians who, who straight-line think their political views, and if you talk to a progressive, they've got their Bible verses, right? They've totally got their—and I like these Bible verses. Like, I think that they're great, and they might teach those things, right? And so God believes in pressure, preferential treatment for the poor. There's tons of verses on the poor getting their due and being treated well, Right? That's, that's, right, that's in the Bible. That's, they didn't make that up and go, oh, I put this new verse in Deuteronomy, right? And like, God wants us to love all people. Like, I, we probably can agree on that with you, without a verse even, right? And that God sets the captives free, that God is a liberator. Like, that's a, it's a huge part of the story of God, right? The story of God kind of starts with, the story of redemption kind of starts with the Jewish people being slaves and being liberated by God, Right? And then God wants it on earth as it is in heaven, right? Like Jesus says, hey, when you pray, say, God, oh, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, that your reign— Well, are there, are there going to be poor people in heaven? No, there's not going to be poor people in heaven. Are there going to be racial tensions in heaven? No, there's not going to be racial tensions. Are there going to be, right? Is there going to be a, a unemployment in heaven, a lack of a dignified use of our ability to create and care for? No, no. And so, should we try to make a utopia here on this earth? 
Well, that is one way to take that verse. I think it's the wrong way personally, but it is one way to take that verse. But Jesus is still saying whether or not it can be achieved, he's still saying we ought to seek it and care about it and want it, right? But then, listen, you take your hat and your umbrella and you go over to the conservative side of the room, and they got plenty of verses too, right? Legal partiality toward the poor is absolutely forbidden in the Bible. It says it is not good to give partiality to a poor person because they're poor. Now it also says right there, it's also not good to give partiality to a rich person because they're rich. That is, legal impartiality is absolute, right? It also says that the Bible affirms everywhere independence and the inviolability of personal property. The idea that you can own stuff, you deserve it, it belongs to you, nobody has the right to take it from you, all that, that's right there in the Bible, right? Um, the constant affirmation of personal individual responsibility regardless of situation. That's in the Bible too. Now, that's not the only thing said about that in the Bible. The Bible says that people who come from difficult backgrounds and so on, these sorts of things, that we should help them and we should take that into account. But whether—but nobody gets to say, I didn't have to be saved, for example. I didn't have to be godly. I didn't have to come to Jesus because I was hurt. I was poor. I was from a bad background and so on. That doesn't work. Everybody is fundamentally responsible for themselves. And we're supposed to love, care for, be merciful towards, and help. Those, these truths exist side by side in the Bible. Interpretationally, you've got to figure out, you know, what are for now? What are for this? How does that? There's all those questions, but then a lot of them still come forward, and they exist side by side, and then we, ha- then we run them through our political philosophy— because the Bible gives no absolute political philosophy, because Christianity was designed to work under any political philosophy and impact all political philosophies. So it can't be an absolute respecter of one. Christianity works fine in totalitarianism, mainly telling the government it's illegitimate, (laughs) but it works fine. It has stuff to say. It functions. It works. And in democracy, and in representative republicanism, and all that kind of stuff. But when we use those shortcuts, and then we plug them into our political shortcut, and it all seems to be running like a clear circuit, we just get really pissy and self-righteous, and we fall into straight-line thinking, and we fall into the kind of demagoguery and stigmatization that seems to be growing in popularity, and it is the most unchristian phenomenon I can possibly think of in relationship of the church to society. We have to transcend it. The gospel is at stake in this. The times in America where the church has grown more irrelevant in the world and in the culture have been the moments where the church has not transcended the cultural divide. Mark Knoll said in one of his books on American history, the moment the American public stopped caring what the church meant, and it got progressively worse from there, was when the church could not prevent the Civil War. When Christians could not prevent the Civil War, the way of peace that the church could serve as conscience for both groups and drive towards war rather than prevent it, demonstrated it couldn't save us, and the culture turned away from it. And a number of times, and, and, the t- and some of the times where the gospel became more People—when Martin Luther King talked about the gospel, a lot of people listened to him. 
Now, I think he had a bunch of things in the gospel kind of screwed up, frankly. But he had a couple things dead on right, and it actually doesn't take everything. You don't have to be dead on right about everything for the culture to listen. And sometimes we're going to have to be wrong in their eyes, and things are going to have to come around. When I was in college, I was pro-life. I was absolutely pro-life. And I was in the minority, and people called me names, and they said I was going to be on the wrong side of history, and so on. And now the majority of Americans, especially the young, are pro-life. Because who, honestly, it doesn't matter what the issue is. Who cares? Like, listen, I have conservative friends that think I am way too liberal economically because I don't, I don't believe you can have a completely unfettered free market. I just don't believe that works. Right? And they think that I'm like a Nazi. Right? I don't care what they think. I just go, great, what's the argument? Why do you think that? Why do you think I should believe in that rather than what I do? It's, I'm, it's not personal, but I'm not going to be demagogued. This is in junior high, right? Like, I, it's, it's, it just boggles my mind how Christians live like society is junior high school, and oh my gosh, if they don't approve of us, and like, who cares? There's only one person's approval that we care about. Jesus. And if we live according to that, we could be emotional grown-ups in relationship to what we believe. And I'm not saying that you don't listen to people that don't disapprove of you. You just don't listen to their disapproval. You listen to their argument. And you say, I want to have a conversation. Please tell me what you think and why. And then don't expect, you know, they're like, well, you changed your mind. I'm like, no, I listen to you. I'm going to go verify this. And I'm also going to talk to other people because you're not my priest, politically speaking. Okay, we need to move on. Um, you're, one of the things that we don't also realize is that you're fighting biology on this. Think about how tedious it would be if every time you took a breath today, you had to, you had to think this through. Now, I could take a breath, a really full breath, or I could not take a breath at all and die, or I could take technically an infinite number of mediating relative breaths of various sizes. Which one should I do? There's an infinite number of possibilities. If I breathe in too much, it's a little uncomfortable and takes a disproportionate amount of energy. If I don't breathe in at all, eventually I toxify and die. But if I, right? It's, it's idiotic. In fact, you have a part of your brain that, like, it's not even a thought process. It just does it before you're even born, right? But your whole brain works like that. That's how our, our minds work, because we live in an extremely complicated world, and so what your brain does is it basically, it lets you make a decision like three times, and then it locks it in as a habit. So you don't have to think about it anymore, right? For example, do you remember tying your, put your shoes on this morning and tying them if you have tying shoes, right? Now you might, and if you think about it, you might go, right? Most people will not remember it, especially if you're over the age of about 37. Um, but you put them on the same way you always do. You tied the same one first, and you probably have forgot about it. Do you remember backing your car out of your driveway? Right? You might if you think about it. Most people don't. You can recreate a video because you've done it enough times, but it may not be this morning's video. Why the heck would you record that? And why do you need it? Your brain doesn't. Your brain's always trying to save energy. It's 4% of your body mass and uses up 20% of your energy. It's always looking for shortcuts, and it, it does that in your thinking, too. So if you think, for example, in a, in a conservative pattern a number of times, and whenever something new comes in, you think in a conservative pattern. You go, civilization, barbar barbarism, I choose civilization, not barbarism, right? After a while, 
you're not thinking anymore. The thing that come in cues a mental habit. It works automatically and makes a decision. You didn't think. You thought you thought. You didn't think. Not really. Because it's a mental habit. So we do straight line thinking. We have these mental shortcuts. Our brain codifies them in habits. And we don't realize it. And no wonder we all hate each other's stinking guts. But the gospel is at stake. We have to transcend this. We are not just animals. We are spiritual and rational animals that God created in his image. And we are meant to live a life of love and truth and wisdom. And we can and we will transcend this. Okay. So if we don't want to think simplistically, is there a way we can have something that if we think on it, we can think simply and it can frame some of these thinking processes so we don't go crazy with the complexity of life? And so this is the definition that I think we can work from, and that is it has five parts to it, right? What are we as the church and society? We are ambassador exiles, witnessing and embodying the redemptive message of Christ applied to the creation mandate for the sake of goodness and peace through pursuing justice and righteousness. Okay? Has five parts. We're ambassadors and exiles. That is, we are fully residents of this city. But we're exiles because we actually are citizens of somewhere else. We're going to live here. We plan to live here. We're fully invested here. This is our community. This is where we're going to marry off our kids and plant our apple trees and so on. And this is, this is our home. And we live for the peace and prosperity of the city. But we are, we do have ultimately a different identity. We're exiles. But we're not exiles judicially. God didn't send us here to punish us. We're exiles with a purpose. We're ambassadors. We have a message. We live in the city of man to speak. Right? We do it by witnessing and embodying. Listen, I know there's lots of people who say, preach the gospel always and use words if necessary. And I show people that I'm a Christian by how I live. And you definitely show people that you don't listen to the Bible by how you live. Because, it, because one of the most fundamental things we are is a witness, an ambassador, a sharer of the message that we live in the city of man, but we were meant to be a, a citizen of the city of God. And that Christ's death and resurrection has created a way in which we can live fully in and for the city of man because we were created to live in creation, and we can do that according to God's creation of us, but we were meant to be redeemed by and for the city of God, and that is the message. And then we show people that we mean what we say. We embody it with real examples as a community, together, and as individuals wherever we go. That the redemption that comes in Christ can then be applied to every action of our earthly lives. Because God didn't create us first for redemption. God created us first to live in this earth and to be his image bearers in it. And to bring out its creative potential and to be its shepherd as we fill and subdue it, like it says in Genesis 1. And then when we screwed that up, he redeemed us so we could be what we were meant to be and belong to him. And to be that forever in his kingdom. And what that means is, is that he doesn't just redeem us from our sins. He always does that first. But he redeems us for a re-embracing of our creation mandate, what we were meant to be as humans in the world and with each other all along. We're to be together and to do that, to seek 
goodness and peace. That word goodness in the Old Testament is often translated uprightness. And here's the important point to think about this, because you're like, well, no duh. Yeah. Here's the thing you need to realize about this. Our success in this is not the reason we do it. We are going to fail. Our attempt to live in such a way so that the, it can be on earth as it is in heaven. Call it a utopia, call it whatever you want. Call it the way things ought to be. We are going to fail. The Jesus who said, when you pray, say, let it be on earth as it is in heaven, could turn around a couple chapters later and say, you will always have the poor with you. And he could say both of those things, and he can mean both of those things. And the reason we, f- we fight and live and sacrifice for goodness and for shalom, for peace, is not because we're going to succeed. It's because we are citizens of a place, and we know of a place, and we're part of a place in a kingdom in which that has always been true and will always be true, and everybody is invited toward, and that's what reality is, and we will live toward it no matter what happens. It doesn't matter what happens. Because it's who we are, and it's what we believe in, and we know we're going to fail. In fact, Jesus just about explicitly told us we would. And it doesn't matter. Because what does he say in the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25? He can say, you'll always have the poor. And then he says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did to me. Did you cure poverty? No. But was the image of God in every poor person? And so that everything you did towards the image of God, that image of God bearer, you did to and for Jesus. That is, you participated in the kingdom of God. You followed the king. You acted toward the thing that was valuable to him. You did what was right, good, true, and beautiful. And of course you failed. Jesus was trying to convince us all to follow, to follow God. And, he, you know, God planned his failure into it. So is ours. Our failure is planned into redemption. We fight the long defeat, to quote quote Tolkien. And do you know what happens? Do you know what's formed in long defeats? Incredible character and camaraderie, which is a good thing. And we do it through justice and righteousness. That's what, we're, that's what we're pursuing. You can't pursue peace and goodness. You pursue justice and righteousness. Um, there's a number of books out. Well, there's one in particular, Keller's book, Generous Justice, where he says um, these, two are very, these two words are very related. And they're almost the same thing in the Bible. And we need to give people their due, both in terms of justice and righteousness. I don't fully agree with that. But I do agree with why he says that. The reason he says he says this, he says, listen, because I don't want Christians to go away thinking that justice is mandatory and charity is optional. So being merciful and charitable and being sacrificially generous, that's optional. You might be good at that, you might be bad, it's no big deal. But what you really need to do is make sure people get basic justice, right? That they get their due under law. They're treated impartially and fairly. Okay. And his, his point is, he relates to because he says, in the Bible, they're both mandatory. Doesn't matter if they're the same, doesn't matter if they're different. They're both mandatory. Christians are commanded to participate in making sure people receive justice. We're also commanded to be merciful, and we're commanded to be compassionate, and we're commanded to be generous. And we're commanded to be that because if we're Christians, we couldn't do otherwise. 
Because when Jesus gives everything for you, you can't really give nothing for him. And you can't give directly to Jesus. However, I do think it's important as Christians to be able to distinguish these two from each other. Because if you want to demagogue and stigmatize people today to make sure they believe in your view, what do you label your view? Do you know? Social justice. That's all. You just take, take any view, and you want to bully people into believing it, whether it's good policy or not, and you want to make people go along with you, and if they don't, they'll be stigmatized, they'll basically be a racist, right? You just, you write social justice over it. Um, the de- demagoguery and misuse of the concept of justice to basically say, this is political apple pie, I think is pretty awful. And I, and I, I want that phrase to mean something. There are plenty of people in this country and in this world who aren't getting justice. Like, justice. They're not being treated impartially under law. They're not being treated fairly. It really is an issue of justice. And I think that you betray them, and we betray them, when we throw around immensely important categories to basically attack each other and make sure real conversations don't happen. And we have to transcend that. Okay, I need to keep moving here. Sorry, I'm getting kind of... Okay, I want to give you two lists. One is from Tim Keller from a talk that'll be on the blog we post next week called The Church and Culture. And what, what has to happen if the church is actually going to influence culture in a way that is beneficial for the good of all people, for their good and for their justice and righteousness, to be ambassadors to them in ways they can receive. And these are the six things he offers. One is, we need more Christians living long-term in cities. Now, I can't make you live in a city. I'm not authorized by the Bible to guilt you into living in a city. However, I will say this. Um, Christians disproportionately flee cities, especially theologically conservative ones, ones that believe in the historical Christian message and in the Bible. And that's partly because we're breeders. We tend to get married and have children, and who wants to live in 600 square feet, right? Um, But it's also because we just don't like cities, we don't, we don't like them. Um, cities, people think cities are beautiful places because they're so diverse. Yeah, and most of the violence in America happens in them also. Like, cities are beautiful and terrifyingly ugly. They've got people in them. They reflect the image of God, and they reflect the depravity of sin squished together. And so there's a lot of Christians that just go, look, I don't want any part of that. I want a bigger house. I want to, and we, and, and some jokes could be made here in Madison about places like Wanakee and Middleton and Cross Plains and so on, right? And it wouldn't be, it, listen, you can live those places. It's, it's, there's no biblical command that says you can't. But here's, here's, the, here's the problem. God cares about people, and they're living disproportionately in cities. And God cares about cultural influence that affects the way people think and feel and how they understand the world. And culture is formed in cities. And when we disproportionately live out of them, we disproportionately lose our influence. And I'm not saying that, like, we have to do some kind of underhanded infiltration. All you have to do is be a Christian, live in the city, and take a job. And live with integrity. And there will be more Christian influence otherwise. There are a number of subgroups in America that are very small, 
but because they live very disproportionately in cities, they have enormous cultural cachet. Evangelical Christians have a disproportionately small cultural cachet because we flee from cities and we hate them. And I'm just saying, you don't have to live in a city, but maybe you should want to. And my invitation is, if you came to Madison and stayed for a year, stay two years. If you came to stay for three years, stay six years. Stay, and if you leave, God bless you, and we'll pray for you, and we'll help you find a good church where you go. Um, but nobody wins the world in this context in 2014 without winning the city. It's just a fact. We need a clear understanding of the gospel. If we're preaching a self-righteous religion, we're not, it doesn't matter how good our example is, no hearts and minds are one. We need to have dramatic countercultures within the city. People need to see an alternative, and we're mainly going to form, form that through very vibrant, healthy, intergenerational, and multicultural, and socioeconomically diverse churches. Right? Four is integrating the relationship between faith and work. Faith has to be integrally connected to Monday through Saturday, and not just exist on Sunday. You need to integrate Christianity not just with your sinfulness, but with accounting. Does that make sense? Five, we need to pour out ourselves sacrificially for the city. Everybody needs to know we love them, even people we deeply disagree with, maybe especially. And lastly, contextualization. We need to answer the questions they are actually asking, rather than whichever ones we wish they would ask, that we have really good answers for. Right? Now, in Benny's book, he talks about four ways the church as an institution and organization can biblically legitimately interact with government, okay? And so for this, I want to kind of set the political culture of the church to a certain extent. Hopefully we could—I'm not not going to tell you what to do. Hopefully we can agree on some of these things, right? The first is it's the church's job to form Christian character and then let it work. That's why our children's ministry is so important. That's why I think there is a place for Christian education, distinctively Christian education. I think that that's why we have Sunday school classes. Right now, there's a Christian ethics class going on, right? Last hour, there was a class on money and on parenting because a full-orbed, complete Christian character has to be formed in all of us. We can't just have Jesus as our special friend, okay? We have to become Christians in full-orbed, deep character. And then we just kick your butt out into the world, and you'll be a Christian, and there'll be enormous influence. I don't have to say anything about politics. But the culture will be affected deeply, okay? The second is forming Christian conscience. We actually have to talk about the spiritual, social, and moral implications of the Christian faith and do it regularly so we know them. A couple years ago, I was preaching here, and I have a very strong conviction that you have to use moral language in sermons. Otherwise, you gut the weightiness of the gospel. And most evangelicals pull away from that because they don't want people to get morally conflicted and therefore upset and not and realize there's moral implications if they believe in Jesus and go, well, I don't want that. And so, and so I, and they won't talk about like, you'll have to stay with your wife if you become a Christian. They just go, Jesus can be your special friend and why don't you come and he loves you and you're one, he just totally approves of everything about you. And I'm like, he, he does, he loves you. He, can, he doesn't approve of everything about you. He loves you, he wants, and he's gonna redeem the mess, and blah, blah, right? And there was a girl who came up to me, very devout, evangelical, going to Moody Bible Institute, like 21 years old, and she's like, listen, I'm very uncomfortable with the way that you talked morally in your sermon because, you know, there's a lot of people that think Christianity is all about self-righteousness and stuff, and, you know, when you talk like that, you, you don't, you're not inviting them to a relationship with God. You're moralizing, and I just don't think that's helpful. And I'm like, listen, 
thank you for sharing with me, right? And you know what, I may have thought, maybe I thought that way when I was 21, okay? Sorry, that was condescending a little bit. But Christian faith is moral. One of, the, one of the huge offenses of Christian faith in the Roman Empire was that most of the pagan gods were themselves immoral. I mean, Augustine said in the fourth century, the reason why Roman society is so immoral isn't because there's more Christians, it's because your gods sleep with each other and murder each other and steal from each other, and then, and then you act like them. The offense of Christianity is that our God is absolutely righteous and absolutely holy and says, listen, you're going to be different morally. Because you're going to reflect my character. And you can't do whatever you want when you do that. And that may make people feel uncomfortable. I I don't care. I'm not going to make a butchery of my conscience or yours by ignoring the fact that the beautiful invitation of Jesus, of absolute loving invitation, is an invitation to someone who is morally beautiful as well. Forgiveness is a moral category. Love is a moral. You must love. That's a moral category. And restraint and self-control keep you from being a terrible trial to other people. And that is a moral category. And it's good. We have to talk about it. I have to talk about it. And there are some things so at the core of Christian moral belief that they will get talked about. Religious freedom is a first freedom. I will talk about it. The protection of life is a first freedom. It's very close to the heart of the gospel, and I will talk about it. Um, Benet actually gives four. He gives those two, and then he gives um, the upholding of family in the form of traditional marriage and the— and a basic safety net for people who truly cannot provide for themselves as an absolute cultural moral obligation. Those are the four he gives. I don't know if I agree with those or not. I think they're pretty good, actually. Um, But we have to form Christian conscience. Now, the other two—now, if we do those two things, what that will mean is we don't have to politicize the church. Because what will happen is Christians will make decisions themselves what they're going to do. And some of you might do things that cancel each other out. You already vote to cancel each other out. Right? But what happens is Christians will then go out with their skills and expertise as lay people outside of the local church and work for things that they believe are good through organizations they will create or in the culture in which they are. So some will be in culture-forming occupations like media or the arts or TV or legislation or, or administration or those kinds of things. And there might be some direct applications. But then there'll be other things like, like CareNet, like I'm not going to run a, a crisis pregnancy center. You don't want me doing it. I can't do it. But people who, because of their Christian conscience and character, believe somebody has to do something about it, and they will be that somebody, can go and do it. And we can help them, but would not be it. Alliance Defending Freedom is a group that I really like. Almost all of the religious freedom cases that have been won in like the last nine or ten years have been won by that group. Okay? But I'm not a lawyer. I can't be a part of it. I can't be litigating freedom of religion cases. I got other stuff I have to do. That's not what the church, the local church is supposed to be doing. Another one is Evangelical Environmental Network. These are basically evangelical greenies. And they're like super into like the environment and creation care and sustainable farming and blah, blah, blah. Which I like, I like all that stuff. 
I saved my own rainwater. Like, I, like I am, I am so into conservation and sustainability. I love that idea, and I want to be part of it, and I am part of it personally. But I'm not starting that organization, and I'm not running it. The Christians who that's their thing, that's the thing they're so drawn to, that's the effect on the creation man- mandate they so want to have. And I'm going to be like, awesome! And if you say, okay, Nick, will you tell everybody to be in my group? I'm going to be like, no. I'm going to preach for Christian character and conscience, and some of them will be pricked in conscience towards what you're doing. But other than that, you just need to inform everybody else, and maybe they'll do something in their life that will lead towards that end. And that way, the church is, does not become this politicized center. Now, there are a couple places where Benet says the church as an organization, as a people, should speak in society and government. One is to persuade in situations where persuasion needs to happen. It's too big an issue. It's too important a time. Good example of this would be Bonhoeffer on the radio saying, elevating the Fuhrer over Christ is idolatry. And then the Nazis cut him off. The Barman Declaration. A bunch of German pastors went over into Switzerland and signed a statement that said, the state is not above the church. They have different spheres, and the, the state cannot tell the church what the gospel is. And they published it in Nazi Germany. And a lot of them were arrested and sent to the front lines of the battle for it. But they believed it was important. I believe that, that a, a very advised one today is the Manhattan Declaration. A bunch of evangelicals and Catholics got together. They fought over and fought over and fought over exactly what should be said about the moral center of the Christian faith, and they published it several years ago. I think it's as good as anything I've read. They spoke publicly, but they didn't just say whatever they wanted. They didn't just pontificate. Like, they were very serious about it. And one of the things that the church can do is instead of pretending like we're qualified to know exactly what policies should be in place, we can call attention to things that are problems and ignoring them as a moral issue, right? So, for example, I've said some things about the research that came out that even in the liberal mecca of Madison and Dane County, the African-American population here is doing worse than almost anywhere else in the country. That's just a fact, as far as I can tell. And I think the church ought to be talking about it. We should be saying, look— so, we got to do— now, that doesn't mean I know the right policy. I don't know the right policy. I don't. Why should I? Why should I have more expertise than people who do this, eat, drink, and sleep it? But I can say morally as the people, let's talk about it. Let's say, no, that's not enough. And when people stop talking about it in three weeks because it isn't sexy anymore, we still go, no, 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 remember that? And we hold it to the fire. One of my frustrations, you're going to hate me for this one, and I—you're I, already mad, right? I get really frustrated with how much— young evangelicals talk about sex trafficking. It drives me nuts. And it's not because they're not totally right. They are. They're totally right. They're totally right. But the proportion is way out of whack. Every—listen, everybody already hates sex trafficking, okay? And we're all pretty aware of it. And these awareness campaigns give me a freaking break. Okay? Either we're going to do something or we're not. What do you want me to do? Okay, there's a thousand other injustices that aren't nearly as sexy, that have much more difficult answers, and we have to work on those too. The number of African Americans who are kind of stuck in this crappy cycle in this county is thousands and thousands and thousands more. More little black fourth grade boys are going to irreparably fall behind educationally this year then there are going to be girls kidnapped in the whole Midwest. And 
Absolutely, I'm all for the ones everybody agrees on. But honestly, I think there's a little bit of cowardice in it because some of the other stuff we have to talk about, it just, it's, it's split. You're going to get stigmatized. You don't know the answer. It's difficult. It's longer conversations. And so it's much easier to just be like, hey, everybody agrees with this issue, so I'll be for it. You know what? Yeah, and put on your Tom's shoes and you drive me crazy. Okay? I did a wedding. I did a wedding at one of the most expensive country clubs in California, in Los Angeles, and there the founder of Tom's was as a member because he's made millions and 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 millions of dollars by getting us to buy crappy shoes that don't look good because he gives one that costs 35 cents to a kid in another country. And listen, I'm totally for it. Like, that was a great idea. I really wish I thought of it. And honestly, Tom's is actually doing more than almost any other corporation. They have some really cool stuff where they're manufacturing in those countries now. I think it's cool. I'm for Tom's. But like, Tom's and sex trafficking is not going to capture my heart and attention. Yes, buy the freaking shoes. Yes, don't kidnap girls. Yes, we should fully fund law enforcement so they can arrest people and throw them behind bars forever. Yes. Okay, now let's fix the education system. Oh, now we're all mad. Character. Ferguson's over. Do you not care anymore? There was a problem or there wasn't. If there's a problem, it's still there. If there wasn't, there wasn't when Mike Brown got shot. The media does not set the timing of our conscience. Right? And sometimes the church has to say, hey, remember that conversation we promised people we were going to have, and now it, it doesn't fit the news cycle anymore, so we stopped? Um, we're not done. Right? You have to do it with your kids. Why not the whole culture? Right? And then lastly, there are moments of direct public coercion. Now, I think these should be really few and far between, but there are opportunities for disobedience and protest and boycott and that kind of stuff. Now, there's sometimes where Christians boycott things and you're kind of like, what? Really? Why that? Right? There was, when I was in Florida, um, there was this, there was this flap in super conservative Christendom where Ford um, had advertised in a gay magazine. Right? Because of this like, incredibly strange idea that they would want gay people to buy their cars, right? And there were a bunch of Christians who were like, we need to boycott Ford. We need to, and I'm like, listen, if I get a chance to buy an F-150, I am buying it, okay? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, but, and like, I get the argument. I get the argument, right? To stop dissonant voices that you believe are harming society, you have to go after their funders. For publications, those funders are advertisers. And so if you want to see a dissonant voice defunded, you have to go after their advertisers. Okay? Political progressives do this all the time. And it's—and I've heard talks of political conservatives now doing it too. Where they're they're intentionally going after sponsors so that people who have radio programs or whatever will lose their funding and go off the air. Okay? But listen, and, I, and some of these I think are so like, I did not boycott Ford, okay? However, I did not judge my secretary who did, who wasn't up for buying a car anyway, honestly. But anyway, right? But I didn't judge her. That was her conviction. And we had a little argument about it. And I said I probably wouldn't boycott Ford, but I wasn't going to buy a car anyway, so who cares? And that was it, right? But like, I would not say the boycotting of the Montgomery bus system in the 50s was idiotic. That was almost entirely a Christian action, 
right? And it changed a fundamental form of segregation in the bus system. Like, that was a good boycott, I think. Like, I'm for that. I was like, yeah, right? The difficulty is like, what do we boy— you know, when would you use this? And I think that um, the church is often found to be more ridiculous than shrewd when we do use this power. Because you're going nuclear. And if you're going to do that, it better be a really good reason. Let me, let me give you an example that'll make you mad. I think the divest from Israel campaign is really ill-advised. I know it's kind of sexy on some college campuses right now. I think drawing a moral relationship between Israel and apartheid is, is beyond out of relationship with the facts of what actually happens in Israel, okay? Um, but it kind of worked when it was done with South Africa. Like there was, I mean, apartheid was terrible, and there was disinvestment that was done and boycotting and so on, and it really helped speed up, as far as I can tell, the breaking up of apartheid in South Africa. So, uh, see, the thing is, is that these come down to judgment calls. The problem with things like boycotts is everybody has to agree, because if you're the only one who does it, it doesn't get very far, right? And then people, people counter boycott, right? Well, if you're going to boycott that, I'm going to buy it, right? I really did stop using Mozilla, but I didn't use Mozilla in the first place, right? But then there were lots of people, I'm going to—I don't care, right? But here's one of the things I think we should recognize culturally. Whenever we make public statements and whenever we use coercion, um, Benet says this about this, and I think it's very helpful. He says, too many interventions suggest that the church has special competency in these worldly matters, which to most it patently does not. The upshot of too many such interventions is that the church is reduced to just another interest group in the eyes of citizens. That is why the majority of Americans, church people and secular people, disapprove of ecclesial bodies and their leaders giving public advice to their political representatives. I think that's pretty much right. Um, We have to vote according to conscience, but when was the last time you listened to one of your political representatives with them working as hard as they could on what policy would be good and to really try to figure out whether they had a really good idea that you just didn't like because people were yelling at it? Right? I've talked to legislators, legislators and, they, and I've heard them say to me, we know the right answer. Both sides of the aisle knows it's the right answer, but neither of our bases will let us do it. What if 40% of Wisconsin decided they weren't going to play that game? There'd be a new base. Evangelicals have a really ugly history over the last 20 years of being captured by political movements. Both conservative and now, particularly among our younger people, liberal. The capture is really silly. And we need to go beyond it, and we need to transcend it. And I think if we understand ourselves as ambassador exiles here to witness and embody the redemptive message of Christ in its relationship to reviving the creation mandate for the sake of goodness and peace through pursuing justice and righteousness, we will have a framework out of which to think and discuss and talk and act that will lead towards humility, civility, honesty, learning, growth, and it will be a compelling example to the people we live around. 
And make no mistake, I absolutely believe the gospel is at stake in this. And the culture's ability to listen. And frankly, this is an issue of personal holiness. Whether or not we will be godly. Whether we will believe the gospel more than our political ideology or social ideology, allow it to be consistently judged by the pages of scripture, and be open to actually being corrected and to offer, offer to inform those who are around us. Again, I said this two years, years ago, I'll say it again. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ, the gospel and Bible-believing church, should have the best, most interesting, most riveting, most exciting, most, in some ways, volatile, but still civilly, political and social discussions that exist any place on planet Earth. And I have seen some happen here, like the five hours we talked about gay, lesbian, transgendered, bisexual issues in the discussion we had after one of the last sermons we had last year, and hopefully in a couple weeks when we have one about this. I'll just end there. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, um, I pray that you would make us a church um, with Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians who believe in Jesus a lot more than that, than those things and who are really honestly consistently struggling to try to figure out how to vote out of conscience and how to act out of conscience and who to support out of conscience. And um, that we would be a people that are not captured and co-opted and we don't create a fusion with faith and politics or society, but we're not totally separate, that we live with full integrity and character. And that we as a church build up people with so much Christian character in conscience, we just about never have to do anything else related to politics or society. Because we, as the church individual in all of our lives, are integrated enough that we just do it. And we pray that through that we would be a, a blessing to our city and our state as we live in a way that blesses you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.